most marriages today take place in a church or in some other place of worship or for those who don't want a religious ceremony in a register office. However, restrictions about where weddings can be held have now been considerably liberalised over recent years. So you can now get married, for example, in the UK on a mountaintop. Uh, You don't even have to climb there, but you can fly up or in a helicopter. Or if you don't have a head for heights, you could go to Bali for an underwater wedding. Uh, But while the location of weddings is flexible, there are certain requirements that cannot be avoided if a wedding is to be legal, not least having a minister or a registered person to take the ceremony, uh, though nowadays it probably helps to be a mountaineer and a scuba diver as well. We assume that most conversions, when a person turns from sin, puts their faith in Jesus, take place in a church building, like this one, for example. Uh, but in fact, many take place in a person's home, while many children and young people, as we've heard this evening, make a commitment to Christ while they're away at a Christian holiday or camp, such as our own County Bay in North Berwick. I didn't realise it was going to be focused this evening when I prepared this two weeks ago before going on holiday. However, I wonder if there's anyone here who came to faith in a moving vehicle. Perhaps in a car, or a train, or a plane. Uh, Today, as we continue our series in the book of Acts, The Spreading Flame, we meet a man who came to faith in Christ in a moving chariot on a desert road. And what we learn is that while the place where you come to faith is not of primary importance, there are certain features which mark out a genuine encounter with Jesus as genuine and authentic. While we may debate whether marriages are made in heaven, what I want to suggest as we look at this story in the book of Acts, which I have entitled, A Meeting Made in Heaven, that any genuine encounter with Jesus is one that is planned by God. And this is what we see in this story. So let's look more closely at the reading which was uh, read for us by Mike and seen on the screen. Let's look at the original version. If you've got a Bible, it will help to turn to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through to 40. It's page 1101. There are different ways of looking at this incident. I was looking back in my records in the past 16 years. I've preached twice on this passage in the past. Fortunately, most people don't have good memories. Uh, But I want to commit it a different way this evening, if any of you can remember the last two times I spoke on it. What I want to suggest is that there are three main characters in the story. Three main characters in the story. Uh, The first is a person that we could describe as the seeker. Andy, are we keeping up with this on the back there? Thanks. There we go. Thank you very much. The seeker in this case is a man described as an Ethiopian eunuch. Verses 27 uh, to 28. Uh, notice two things about this man. First of all, his status. Uh, Luke, who wrote this book, the author of Acts, describes him as an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. 
some explanations for those who are interested in these kind of things. Uh, Ethiopia, 2,000 years ago, when this happened, is not the same geographical place as it is today, modern Ethiopia. It was a region south of Egypt, known in the ancient world as the Kingdom of Cush. It covered the whole of the Upper Nile region, from Aswan down to Khartoum in Sudan. Today, if you want to go to the place where this actually happened, where this man came from, it's the region of Nubia, some 1,000 miles south of the Mediterranean. So, the first thing you need to know about this man is, this man in the story is almost certainly a black man. The kingdom he came from was ruled by kings. And the people believed that these kings were descended from sun gods, and so they were too holy to get their hands dirty looking after the affairs of government. And so the person who looked after the government was always your mother, the queen mother. Uh, and she was known as, well, we pronounce it Candice, it's actually pronounced Kandake. We'll stick with Candice for now. And the word Candice is not a name, it's actually a title, the Candice, the Kandake. And the money question in the story is the Chancellor of the Exchequer in Candice's government, uh, in the Candice's government, a high and very responsible office. That was his status. But notice the second thing about the man, an important thing about this man, his search. We read that this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now, we can't be certain about his relationship to the Jewish faith. It's not impossible that he actually was a Jew. For this part of the world had a long history, going back a thousand years, uh, with the kingdom of Israel. Way back, if you know the Bible, to the story of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, who came from this same region. You may remember she visited Solomon and was very impressed by his wealth and his wisdom. So there may have been a Jewish community in this region of which the man was a member. However, most people think that he was not a full Jew, uh, but a convert to Judaism, what was called a proselyte, or someone who had not finally converted, but was thinking about it. Uh, he was called, they were called a proselyte at the gate. That is, someone at the door, but not in. Uh, the reason why this may be the case is that he's described as a eunuch. One who had been emasculated as a young man in preparation for trusted government service. If you know your ancient history, you'll know that uh, harems were often run by eunuchs, for obvious reasons we're not going to. Uh, if that was the case, then under the law of Moses... Deuteronomy 23.1, he was barred from full participation in the temple and its worship. Uh, there is some uncertainty about this because the term eunuch actually came to mean a high government official and he may not have been a full eunuch in the full sense of the word. Whatever the case, we don't know, this man was a seeker and a serious seeker. He's prepared to take a long journey which took many weeks or even months and he was serious enough and rich enough to purchase a scroll of the Hebrew Scriptures, which he's reading in his chariot on his return home from Jerusalem. This man had gone to Jerusalem, verse 27, to worship, was on his way home, was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. So here is a man of status who is a man who is on a search. A search which we discover is still unresolved. Now it's very important to notice this. He's looking in the right place, among God's chosen people. He's looking in the right place in God's revealed word, but he still hasn't found the answers that he's looking for. And that, what I want to say is what is true of him 
is true of all people in all parts of the world. All human beings are on a search, on a journey, looking for the answer. Here's what wise King Solomon wrote about our search for God in the book of Ecclesiastes. He wrote, He, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Maybe this evening you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you've come along to church. Maybe someone's dragged you along and said, come to Charlotte Chapel. Uh, And within your heart there's a search, an emptiness, questions about what's life all about? Why am I here? Where am I going to? Is there a God? All those sort of questions. Uh, There is a sense within, deep within us, as Solomon says, uh, that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And yet you you somehow just can't get to the answer. You're searching and yet somehow you never get an answer. Maybe you're that kind of person this evening. Maybe God has brought you here this evening for that very reason. And what I want to say, it's not a hopeless search. For behind our search for God is God's search for us. For he's placed that search in our hearts. God willing, as we continue in the book of Acts, if we go right to the end, uh, later on we'll find Paul, messenger of Jesus Christ, in the great Greek city of Athens, famed for its intellectual wisdom. And here he is speaking to the leading council of the city of Athens. This is what he told them. From one man, God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined a time set for them, the exact places where they live should live. God did this so that men should seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God has placed a search in our hearts for him, and he's not miles away. He's actually close by, if we only knew. And so maybe this evening you're like this first character. Maybe you're on a search, a journey that's not yet reached its destination. But God is not far from you, as he was not far from this man. But like him, you need help. You need human help. So we meet the second person in the story. After the seeker, the servant. The Ethiopian is on his way home, on a journey. But unbeknown to him, a meeting has been arranged, a divine appointment. God has a servant who's going to help this man and his name is Philip. If you've been with us in this series in Acts, you'll know that we first met Philip in Acts chapter 6 in Luke's account of the seven men chosen to wait on tables serving food to widows in need. But like the other six, he was chosen as a man who was full of the spirit and wisdom, Acts 6 verse 3. And like one of them, Stephen, that we've met recently in our series, his service to God is not limited to sharing food, but also includes sharing the gospel, the good news about Jesus, for he's a powerful preacher. As we've seen after the martyrdom of Stephen, by stoning, all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, Acts 8 verse 1. And Stephen, scattered from Jerusalem, ends up in Samaria, as Colin was sharing with us, where he preaches about Jesus, the promised Christ. So Stephen began by serving widows with food. Now we find him serving Samaritans with the gospel. Like many since, he's proved himself faithful in practical and humble service before God calls him to greater things. 
But whatever he does, however small or mean, large or famous, he is serving God. He's serving with absolute obedience. And we see this because Philip then receives a fresh assignment from the Lord. Driven by persecution to Samaria, he's now directed by an angel, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's not absolutely certain, uh, but most likely that Philip was in Samaria, not back in Jerusalem, when he received these fresh marching orders. Whatever the case, it must have seemed a very strange assignment. Imagine, here he is in the great city of Samaria, he's preaching the good news about Jesus, hundreds and thousands of people are turning and becoming Christians. He's leading what we would call a revival in the city. Imagine, I'm trying to imagine it myself as a, as a preacher, uh, wonderful results, all sorts of great things happening, and suddenly he gets new instructions to leave there to head for a road through a desert. Maybe that's why God used an angel to guide him. Can I say in my experience that God uses more stronger and more dramatic means to guide us uh, when the guidance that we need needs to be strong and dramatic to convince us it's absolutely right. However, there's no, there's no indication that Philip questioned his orders. Uh, perhaps uh, he might have felt like complaining to the Lord. Lord, there are those 12 apostles who are still sitting in Jerusalem who might be more gainfully employed doing this instead of sending delegations to check me out in Samaria. No, he simply gets up and does what he's told. Uh, so he heads out to this desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, it's a 60 mile journey, the, if you're looking at the map on the screen, it, it's the bit at the bottom from Jerusalem west to Gaza. It's about a 60 mile journey along that road. Um, Gaza was one of the last great Philistine cities and it was the kind of, as you were going, if you were going south, further south to Africa, it was the last kind of staging post you arrived at before you head up, head, headed south. Um, the old city of Gaza had been destroyed over a century before and lay in ruins, but a new city had been built some 50 years later. So there were two routes around Gaza, and most people think that Philip was on the old desert route. It wasn't exactly the M8 to Glasgow anyway, put it that way. Uh, and we can imagine Philip standing by the road, wondering what to do. It's a, it's a wonderful story, isn't it? You know, the Lord says to him, go to the desert road. This angel tells him, go to the desert road. So he sets off on this long journey and he gets to the desert road. I don't know how far along the road he was. Maybe he's standing there or walking along thinking, what am I doing here? When a cloud of dust appears on the horizon and a chariot rolls into sight. And as he passes by, Philip receives further orders. This time directed by the Spirit. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Uh, I like the comment made by the, uh, the American preacher uh, and teacher Kent Hughes. He's got a series of sermons on the book of Acts. And he writes, And suddenly, there stood Philip, God's hitchhiker. Have spirit, will travel. Let me say, if you are a Christian, are you sensitive to God's spirit? Are you ready and available to travel? It's, it's actually very appropriate this evening. we thinking about people who are going to do all sorts of different things in the summer. Uh, are you under orders? Are you, are you ready to do what the Lord asks you? Sometimes we miss God-given opportunities. We're not alert and wondering, why has God placed me here? 
I don't mean we should get screwed up about it and think, who's this person next to me, you know? Should I say something? But if you're alert and listening to God, God will direct you to people. If you have a heart and mind open to do that. Some of us are better at this than others. It's not one of my strengths. It's certainly one of my wife's strengths. As she's not here this evening, I'll tell you a story about her. Uh, just don't tell her when you, when you see her. Uh, I learned this many years ago when Nita and I became friends and got engaged. Uh, we went off to Mexico. Nita was studying Spanish and Latin American studies at Newcastle University. And, and for her term abroad, instead of going to Spain and Portugal, she went to Mexico and Brazil. And so we travelled together to Mexico uh, by plane because I was going out there to be best man for my best friend who was working in Mexico. It's a long story. She was going out to work with Wycliffe Bible Translators, the mission that we work with. Anyway, we got on the plane. Nita always sits looking out the window for some reason. I was in the middle... And there was a guy next to me who looked really strong and healthy. And I kept looking at him. I whispered to Nita, I'm sure this guy's a sportsman. I'm sure I've seen him on television somewhere. And uh, Nita said, well, she's not into sports, so she had not a clue, you know. Well, he looks sporty to me. Anyway, eventually got talking to him. It turned out, the rugby fans among you will know the name. It was Mike Gibson, who, used to, who was the captain of the British Lions at that time. And there was a whole party of them, including... Uh, uh, Gareth Edwards and all sorts of famous rugby players on this trip. They were, they were stopping halfway off for a trip to Bermuda for an exhibition rugby match. So you imagine when I found out who he was, we had this amazing conversation about sport and rugby and everything else. And we had a, a really, I thought, wait till I get home, telling my friends sat next to Mike Gibson. Fantastic conversation. Anyway, after a little while, I went to the back of the plane to get a, a drink. I asked one of the stewardesses for a drink. And I was away about 10 minutes. When I came back and sat back down to Mike Gibson, he turned to me and said, what's all this about Christianity and Bible translation? See, I'd sat there talking about sport. I, I, I would have talked to him about sport the whole journey. Nita, in a very natural way, told him what she was doing and shared about her faith and, and what it meant. She was alert and open to the opportunity. And Philip was like that, of course. So Philip, it's a great story, isn't it? Philip runs alongside this chariot and here's the man reading aloud. Now, for those of you who think he couldn't read very well, the common practice of the day was you always read aloud. Uh, used to this kind of thing nowadays with people talking aloud on mobile phones and when they're traveling. <laughs> but he was reading aloud uh, from the scroll of Isaiah, probably the Greek version, because the quotation that follows is very close to the Greek version of the Old Testament, what's called the Septuagint. Um, and notice in the conversation that follows, two essentials, which we need to keep in mind when we're trying to share with seekers if we want to be servants. The first is the need for understanding. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. It's a great story, isn't it? You can imagine this chariot sort of rolling down the road. I don't know how fast chariots went in those days. It's quite a long journey, maybe it's fairly slow, but anyway, he was pretty fit, he must have been, to, to be serving the Lord. And he runs alongside and he hears this man reading aloud from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, and he can imagine, he's running alongside and saying, do you understand what you're reading? <laughs> it's very important, he has no pre-packaged uh, gospel formula or approach. No, he begins as we should, with, with where the man is at. And what a place, immersed in the scriptures... God's word, but lacking understanding. So the second essential is this, the need for a preacher. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Uh, by the word preacher, 
I mean someone who proclaims and explains God's word. Either to crowds of people, as Philip had been doing in Samaria, or one-to-one, as he does here with this man. He's equally adept at both. He's able to speak with equal facility to Samaritans regarded by the Jews as half-breed heretics, or to a black African official. He's what we call a cross-cultural missionary, able to relate his faith to different people. And God chooses to use people like Philip, like us as preachers, to proclaim, to explain the good news of Jesus to people who haven't heard of him. Or if they have heard of him, they don't understand who he is, what he came to do. That's very important to notice as we look, as we continue in the book of Acts, that from time to time, God uses angels. And he uses them for all sorts of purposes. But as you read the book of Acts, you will discover that angels do not, cannot preach the gospel. Some ways you think, surely it'd be, it'd be much better. My neighbour would be much more impressed if an angel explained the gospel to them than if I did. Wouldn't they? Everybody's interested in angels, touched by an angel, you know. But angels don't know anything about salvation. God uses angels to direct people, but he uses human beings to explain the gospel. Now, that places a great responsibility and also a great privilege on us. Because if people are going to understand the good news about Jesus, they need a human being to explain it to them. There are many interesting things happening in in the world today, as you probably know, in many parts of the world, uh, in the Muslim world in particular, where people have no access to the Scriptures, and people have dreams and visions and all sorts of things. If you you study them, and I've kept a close watch on this uh, for quite a long time now, you'll discover that no matter how supernatural the appearances of dreams and even the appearance of of visions of Jesus, whatever may be, people don't come to faith usually by that. Nearly always they're directed to go and find a human being to explain the gospel to them. And the human beings God uses are people like you and me. People who have an experience of Christ. It's vitally important. Writing to the Christians in Rome, uh, the Apostle Paul reminds them of the way of salvation. Romans 10.9, it says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And he goes on to say, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you think, great, that's it, that's all they need, call on the name of the Lord. But, there is a problem, a succession of obstacles on the way, which must be overcome if a person is to believe in Jesus and be saved. Notice, the progression of what Paul writes in Romans 10. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? Secondly, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Thirdly, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Fourthly, and how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, do you you see the logic? Everyone that calls in the name of Jesus will be saved. But, but how can they if they've never heard of him? And how can they hear of him? Unless someone goes and tells them. Absolutely vitally important that people are sent. And all of us, no matter how limited we may feel our understanding is, all of us are people that God wants to use. Let me just simply leave this with you. If you are a Christian here in Charlotte Chapel this evening... Why not 
Keep this in your focus this week, as you go into this week, whatever you're going to be doing. And just say to the Lord, Lord, if there's someone you want me just to speak to about you, in whatever way it may be, a full explanation of the gospel as it was with Philip, or just a word, an appropriate word to someone in need. Be alert. Look out for the opportunity. See what God is doing. Be sensitive to what God is wanting to say to you. It may be a person you've never really thought of. Maybe someone is a complete stranger. Maybe someone you've worked with in the past and you think they have no interest, but they may say something. Something may happen which provides you with an opportunity. Are you a servant who is ready and waiting to be used by God? Philip is sent. It's his beautiful feet that bring good news to this one man. The servant meets the seeker. But there is one other person in the story, the main character of whom the servant is about to introduce uh, to the seeker. Thirdly and finally, the saviour. Of all the scriptures to have in his hand, and of course you wouldn't have had a book like this, you would have had a scroll, a, a long scroll that you unroll probably, uh, and he has the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It's quite a long scroll, maybe 16, 20 feet long, something like that, and you kind of rolled it out as you, as you read it and roll down, the scroll down, a bit like you do on a computer screen when you're reading a document. Uh, and of all the places he's reached, he's come to chapter 53 in Isaiah. Well, our chapter 53. Wouldn't have had chapters like that in those days. The description of the suffering servant of the Lord. He's reading Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. The eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the Ethiopian has a question about the person here described. A question about his identity. The eunuch asked Philip, verse 34, Tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Uh, in Jewish thinking among teachers and scholars at this time, there was a lot of debate, there was no agreement about the identity of the person mentioned here in Isaiah. This mysterious suffering servant. Some people thought it was the prophet himself, other people thought it was a picture of the whole nation of Israel. Uh, one commentator, Robert Longacre, comments, the doctrine of a suffering Messiah was generally unheard of and considered unthinkable in first century Jewish circles generally. Nobody imagined that this was a description of the Messiah. But Philip is in no doubt that Isaiah is speaking about a Messiah who suffers, the Messiah, as he reveals the answer to his identity. Then, verse 35, Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Literally, the literal translation is, Philip gospeled him about Jesus. He gospeled him Jesus. It would be wonderful to know more of the conversation and to know what Philip actually said. In that one chapter from which he was reading, there is more than enough to explain the gospel in Isaiah 53. Maybe Philip turned back earlier in the chapter to verse 6 about the need for a saviour. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us have chosen to go our own way, but God has made a way back, a way of forgiveness, by taking our sin on himself. So then to the verses he was reading, the suffering of the saviour. 
Maybe Isaiah read these verses with him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before a shearers is silent. So he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he'd done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. No doubt Philip told him, now this is how this has just been fulfilled fulfilled in God's chosen Messiah Jesus. He has fulfilled this as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The innocent victim who suffers in our place. No doubt he told him about the death of Jesus. No doubt he pointed and said about him being assigned a grave with the rich in his death and told him about the grave that was prepared for Jesus where his body was laid in a rich man's grave. And then as the chariot bumped along that desert road, perhaps they read on later in the chapters to the next verses about the vindication of the Saviour, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. No doubt Philip told him, this was all part of God's wonderful plan for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that God has raised him from the dead. Through him a way of forgiveness. Being put right with God is now possible. The searcher is seeing the answer to his searching in Jesus. And maybe Philip concludes with the final verses of Isaiah 53. The exaltation of the Saviour. Isaiah 53:12. Therefore I'll give him a portion among the great. He'll divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death, was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is now exalted to the highest place at the right hand of God where he ever lives to make intercession for those who come to God through him. And maybe this is much more speculative. Maybe he turned over a couple of chapters to Isaiah 56 and the promise of hope for all. Isaiah prophesied, let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say the Lord will exclude me from his people. Let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. Here's a man who's a foreigner. Here's a man who's a eunuch. He's now welcomed into God's family. No longer excluded from God's blessing. You see, the gospel of Jesus is good news for all people. And the whole of the Bible, this book, from the beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, is all about Jesus. He's the main character in the story. The story of salvation. For he is the saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice how the story of the seeker, the servant and the saviour ends. If Jesus is the saviour then the servant must call for a response and the seeker must make a response. Perhaps Philip has concluded his explanation as, as Peter did on the day of Pentecost in his sermon by telling the person that he needs to repent and put his faith in Jesus and mark it by baptism. Whatever the case, the Ethiopian knows about baptism. For as the chariot approaches a spring alongside the road and no one knows exactly where it was, there's about four different places being proposed, it doesn't really matter. He asked a crucial question. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water, why shouldn't I be baptised? We can't be sure what answer Philip gave. If you've got your Bibles, you'll see there's a footnote of a verse that's not included in our translation. It comes from some later manuscripts. It may not have been original, but it's the kind of thing, almost certainly, 
that would have been made at baptism, the kind of confession. Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The official answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Certainly Philip is happy to go along with the proposal. Neither he nor the Ethiopian delayed, as we so often do, but there is immediate response. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. It must have been amazing for the charioteers and all the party who were accompanying him. First of all, this guy runs alongside from the roadside, jumps in the chariot, and they're bumping along. It must have taken quite a bit of time explaining to his master, this high official, what was happening. And then suddenly the official says, whoa, stop the chariot by this water. And then he and Philip go down into the water and he is baptized. And following this, there's the parting of the ways. The Ethiopian is left rejoicing. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. The eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way. Tradition, through the second century church father, Irenaeus, says that he became a missionary to his own people. Something very interesting I read that I'd never read before this week when I was studying for this two weeks ago. Uh, The ancient world had a phrase to describe the part of the world that this man came from, the remote part of Africa that, that was a kind of obscure place. Do you know what they called it? They called it the ends of the earth. What did Jesus say? You'll be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The flame of the gospel continues to spread from its beginning in Jerusalem to remote parts of Africa, the good news of Jesus. And what of Philip? One commentator writes, with baptism complete, so is Philip's mission. It's not absolutely sure exactly what happened. He's taken away by the Spirit, either supernaturally or instantly, where he continues his ministry. Philip continues evangelizing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus, and travelled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Carries out a maritime mission, making his way along the coast. We'll meet him later in Acts chapter 21. He's now living in Caesarea. He's got four unmarried daughters who prophesy. Still sharing the good news, Luke describes him as Philip the Evangelist. And I'm pretty sure it was there when Luke, part of Paul's missionary journey, part of the team, they stayed with Philip. And I'm sure when they got there, Luke said to Philip, tell me about some of the stories, what happened in the old days. And I'm sure that that Philip told him this wonderful story about the Ethiopian, straight from the evangelist's mouth. It's an amazing story, isn't it, how God brings people together with this meeting made in heaven because God loves the individual and he uses human beings like us. Almost finished. Uh, Let me conclude where we began. We began by stating it doesn't matter where you're converted, in a church building, in your home, at a camp, even in a moving vehicle. What does matter are other essentials. Here are two essential questions from this story, which I leave with you. One, have you believed? Have you understood, really understood, who Jesus is? Why he came into the world? Why he died the way he did? on a cross, laid in a grave. Why he rose again? Have you turned from your sin and put your faith in him? Maybe God has brought you here this evening for that very purpose, your meeting made in heaven. And I simply say to you, don't miss it. And if you have believed, there's a second question that arises out of this story. Have you been baptized? 
publicly confessing your faith in Jesus. If you have believed in Jesus, then maybe you need to ask the same question the Ethiopian asked. Not the question we often ask, why should I be baptized? But why shouldn't I be baptized? Baptism is a public confession of faith in Jesus. This Ethiopian was baptized immediately on confession of faith. The two things went together. And so they should for us. It's been great over these months to see people who have been baptized on the last Sunday of every month. There's another service in June at the end of the month. Uh, There's another one at the end of July. Someone's getting baptized. If you're interested about that, then speak with one of us, with Rodney, who's been running these classes on Baptism Explored. But let me leave you those two questions. Have you believed? Have you been baptized? Let's pray together, shall we?